it's really a very great pleasure on behalf of all of my colleagues here at the Library of Congress to welcome you. I know you've already been busily functioning, but uh, I want to give you a especially warm welcome to this symposium co-sponsored by Brigham Young University celebrating the bicentennial of the birth of Joseph Smith. In 1819, John Adams, uh, who was president, had signed the legislation creating the Library of Congress, informed a correspondent that, and I'm quoting him, the science of theology is indeed the first philosophy, the only philosophy that comprehends all philosophy, all science. It is the science of the universe and its ruler, and what other object of knowledge can there be? End of quote. Um, so I think Adams, who's gotten much more attention recently because of David McCullough's book, would be pleased that present-day Americans continue to be interested in theology and religion as an important part of American history and an important part of life. He would not be surprised at the passions, of course, that these subjects generate. Since the Library of Congress uh, really is the world's largest repository of stored knowledge and the mint record of American creativity, thanks to copyright deposit and the deposit of so many of our creative figures, it's an ideal forum for a intellectually rigorous exploration of religion and its impact on society. In recent years, we've hosted conferences and mounted exhibits on the following subjects. It was Want Rome Reborn, which was uh, the exhibition of the treasures of the Vatican Library. In the beginning was the Word, discussed the Russian Orthodox Church, whose archives in North America we have here, and its interaction with native Alaskan cultures. Let There Be Light was William Tyndale in the making of the English Bible, religion and the founding of the American Republic. In 2003, we uh, co-sponsored with Yale University a symposium marking the tricentennial of the birth of Jonathan Edwards, and most recently, the library co-sponsored from Haven to Home, 350 years of Jewish life in America. It is therefore extremely appropriate and welcome that we continue to examine significant religious movements and the lives of important religious personalities, and particularly when they impact so directly and reflect in so many ways important things of our own broader history as Americans. So today we bring together leading scholars to investigate the career of Joseph Smith, founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and to determine his influence on America and the world. I have no doubt that the papers delivered, which you've already heard, and the ones that will follow in the discussion generated by them, will deepen our knowledge of Joseph Smith. The richness of the Library of Congress's collections is never better illustrated or better used to illuminate subjects on which it might be assumed uh, that our collections would be weak. We recently had an exhibit of Winston Churchill and discovered that we had 17 letters of Winston Churchill in the course of preparing for it that we hadn't realized, which actually described his experiences in the trenches in World War I about relatively little had been known. Anyhow, we have strong holdings on the Mormons, on the LDS Church, proof of which um, is the document in the cases in the foyer just outside this auditorium in case you missed them. So I invite you to examine those cases where you will see treasures including uh, Joseph Smith's 1829 copyright application for the Book of Mormon and an accompanying printer's proof sheet of the title page of the Book of Mormon, which experts tell us is the actual first printed document in Mormon history. 
So we're happy to host this symposium. We're pleased to see such an excellent crowd here. And I'm certain that it will be an intellectual feast for the audience as well as for the speakers. So I thank you all, and I'm happy to turn the proceedings back with, again, the appreciation of all of us at the Library of Congress for all of you being here. Many of you haven't come a long way, and particularly to Brigham Young University, are, with whom we've had such an excellent sponsorship of this gathering. Thank you, and good conference. We appreciate it. Well, we're honored that the librarian would take this time with us today and uh, appreciate his uh, good comments. <clears throat> My name is Noel Reynolds. Uh, I am a professor of political and legal theory at Brigham Young University, where I currently serve as director of the Foundation for Ancient Research and Mormon Studies. I am pleased to have the assignment of moderating this panel on Joseph Smith and the recovery of past worlds. Christian history, from its earliest centuries to the present, is replete with the names of reformers who undertook to reestablish the original teachings and practices of Jesus Christ as they have understood those. We heard uh, a lot about that this morning. But until 1829, none of these had produced ancient texts in the biblical tradition designed to expand and refine our understanding of that tradition. Uh, early converts to uh, Joseph Smith's restored Church of Christ clearly saw the Book of Mormon and other ancient texts that followed as clear evidence that Joseph Smith was sent by God as a prophet in these latter days to restore his lost teachings, practices, and authority that were necessary to prepare the world for the second coming of Christ. While these claims have been stoutly resisted by traditional Christians from the beginning, a growing body of serious scholars is convinced that these texts are in fact credible as ancient texts. And most of the alternative theories uh, which have arisen uh, from the early years have not, uh, have not found strong scholarly support supporters in recent years. Uh, you will note on this particular panel that Margaret Barker is outnumbered by the LDS participants. And that's not because uh, we wouldn't have wanted to have more non-LDS participants on the panel. And we're hoping that one of the consequences of this conference will be that we will be able to attract uh, serious textual scholars, Bible scholars and others, uh, such as Mrs. Barker, that would be willing to look at the texts that Joseph Smith uh, brought forward in this restoration. Today's panelists take a careful look at the ancient worlds described in these restored texts and assess their contribution to our understanding of the ancient texts and archaeology of ancient worlds that are otherwise available to us. <clears throat> our presenter for this session is Terrell Gibbons, Professor of Literature and Religion at University of Richmond in Virginia. Uh, two of Professor Gibbons' most important books focus on the reactions of American culture to Mormonism and the Book of Mormon. Both were published by Oxford University Press, as will be other works on related theory themes now in production. His most recent book, By the Hand of Mormon, led him into a careful and thorough analysis of the implications and consequences of Joseph Smith's claim that the Book of Mormon was an ancient work. We have asked him in this presentation 
to look at the larger phenomenon, Joseph Smith restoring a variety of ancient texts by the power of God. Professor Gibbons. Thank you. It is certainly an honor and a privilege to be with you to share this historic occasion. I will preface my remarks by pointing out that earlier today, Professor Remini expressed mild consternation at Professor Bushman's last-minute revisions to his paper, and I must confess to my panel that I have done the same thing. No, this is not, as Professor Remini suspected, some kind of Mormon joke. It just seems appropriate in a context such as this and at a conference such as this that we don't just talk about Joseph, but that some of us assume the burden of enacting his principle of continuing revelation and, <laughs> and an open canon. Joseph Smith was an explorer, a discoverer and a revealer of past worlds. An ancient America replete with elaborate detail and daring specificity, rooted and grounded in what he claimed were concrete, palpable artifacts. A patriarchal past that recuperated texts of Adam, Abraham, Enoch, and Moses to resurrect and reconstitute a series of past ages, not as mere shadows and types of things to come, but as dispensations of gospel fullness equaling and in some cases surpassing present plenitude, and an infinitely receding premortal past, not of the largely mythic platonic variety, and not a mere Wordsworthian sentimental intimation, but a fully formed realm of human intelligences, divine parents, and heavenly counsels. Today I want to say something about this process of recovery and leave to my colleagues more discussion about the particulars of those products. And I want to say something about the cumulative meaning of the past of the worlds that he discovered. One of the great challenges in dealing with Joseph Smith historically has been the difficulty of meeting him on his own terms. More than anything else, Joseph labored to free himself from the burdens of theological convention, intellectual decorum, and perhaps most especially, the phobia of trespassing against sacred boundaries. There are a number of ways in which Joseph has been situated with respect to the paradigm shift of the early 19th century that we call Romanticism. But I think we have failed to fully appreciate Smith in the context of what we could call Romantic discourse. From Jean-Jacques Rousseau's meandering reveries to Samuel Coleridge's Kubla Khan and other partial dream visions, to the Schlegel's literary magazine called Athenium Fragments, the entire era was dominated in literature, but also in music, in philosophy, and even in landscape, by images of the remnant, the fragment, the ruin, the shard. Such indications of tentativeness, of searching exploration, or of residual hints and vestiges reaffirmed the Romantics in their refusal to see writing as finality, utterance as complete, or discursive thought as ever definitive. Systematization is, in this regard, stultifying, deadening, and almost always derivative. I must create my own system, insisted the mercurial William Blake, 
or be enslaved by another man's. The dynamic, active, ongoing process of creating meaning is primary to the romantics, not the finality or polish of the final product. Like Blake, Joseph Smith almost always put himself in an agonistic, if not antagonistic, relationship to all prior systems. By this I mean that consistent with other romantic thinkers, from Malthus to Hegel to Darwin, Joseph believed that struggle, opposition, contestation, are not just the essence of personal probation and growth, but also describe an intellectual dynamic that moves us ahead in our quest for truth. I am like a huge rough stone rolling down from a high mountain, Smith said, and the only polishing I get is when some corner gets rubbed off by coming in contact with something else, striking with accelerated force against religious bigotry, priestcraft, the authority of perjured executives. This is not just a description of his character development, but of his intellectual modus operandi, exploring the limits, challenging conventional categories, and dynamic engagement with the boundaries all in the interest of productive provocation. Or as he said in words that summarize his method shortly before his death, it is by proving contraries that truth is made manifest. Let me illustrate this epistemology in the case of Joseph. Joseph paid as much attention to the process of true religion as to the content. I have argued elsewhere for the fact that the Book of Mormon is the prime instance of this. The history of that scripture's reception clearly demonstrates that the Book of Mormon was both valued and reviled for the same reason, not its content, but its dr dramatic enactment of the principle of continuing revelation and an open canon. I think it is clear that Joseph considered this process, not the particulars revealed through this process, as the cardinal contribution of his calling. So did his closest associates. On New Year's Day, 1844, Parley P. Pratt published Mormonism's first piece of fiction in the New York Herald. It is a comic dialogue entitled, Joseph Smith and the Devil. In this humorous but earnest piece, the devil is insisting to the prophet Joseph that contrary to reputation, he really is in favor of all creed systems and forms of Christianity, of whatever nature and name so long as they leave out that abominable doctrine which caused me so much trouble in former times, and which, after slumbering for ages, you have again revived. I mean the doctrine of direct communication with God. Certainly what Joseph revealed was important and generally revolutionary. A quick overview of his teachings on God and man, for instance, show not just eruptions of novelty, but a thoroughgoing endeavor to overturn the most sacred tenets of cultural Christianity. He summarily repudiates the God of the creeds, preaching a deity who has a body, parts, and passions. Then he almost cursorily evaluates, dismisses, and reconceptualizes answers to the three great questions of human existence. Where do we come from? St. Augustine asked the question, Did my infancy follow some earlier stage of life? Before I was in my mother's womb, where was I? But he gave it up as a great unknown. What is our nature and purpose? What could be worse pride, the same Augustine asked in bitter self-reproach, than the incredible folly in which I asserted that I was by nature what God is? Contrast this with Smith's emphasis on innocence, freedom, agency, accountability, liberty, 
These are the words that filled Joseph's mind while many, but not all, religionists were painting a portrait of utter depravity, corrupted nature, inherited guilt, predestination, determinism, not just in Christendom, but almost universally. As the philosopher Louis Menand writes, almost every 19th century system of Western thought was haunted by fatalism, mechanical or materialist determinism. And the third question, where are we going? In reference to the final judgment, Joseph writes in the Olive Leaf Revelation, section 88, verse 32, they who remain shall also be quickened, nevertheless they shall return again to their own place to enjoy that which they are willing to receive because they were not willing to enjoy that which they might have received. The question he poses to the human family is, what are we willing to receive? Human destiny, its divine potential, is limited only by our own unwillingness to receive the infinite opportunities God lays before us, even Godhood itself. Human acceptance of the serpent's invitation to be as gods, according to the commentators, was the primal instance of human sinfulness. This audacity was likewise the most heinous of all human evils in Dante's catalog of evil. So profoundly wrong was it, the angelic guide explained, that man in his limits could not recompense. For no obedience, no humility man offered later could have been so deep that it could match the heights he meant to reach. As one of Dante's editors paraphrases, only the act of infinite humility whereby Christ became incarnate and suffered the passion could compensate for the infinite presumptuousness of man. This fearsome presumption is what motivates a whole tradition of indignation. Jonathan Edwards, echoing Dante's horror, found human rebellion against such perfection, holiness that was infinitely beyond human standards, so infinitely evil as to warrant eternal punishment. Only Lucifer's attempted emulation of deity I will be like the Most High, can equal, even as it foreshadowed, such titanic insolence. I rehearse these specific examples not to establish a basis for appraisal or historical context. That may come later in the symposium. But to emphasize their common denominator, the ongoing elaboration of theological positions that stand in dramatic juxtaposition, in audacious or brash or blasphemous opposition, some would say, to the status quo. Joseph knew that it was this collapse of sacred distance, the enunciation of the forbidden, the articulation of the ineffable, the concretization of the abstract and the invasion of sacred space that characterized both the bane and boon of his calling. In reply to Mr. Butterfield, he wrote, I stated that the most prominent difference in sentiment between the Latter-day Saints and sectarians was that the latter were all circumscribed by some peculiar creed which deprived its members the privilege of believing anything not contained therein, whereas the Latter-day Saints have no creed, but are ready to believe all true principles that exist as they are made manifest from time to time. This resistance to formal creeds, to a closed canon, and to orthodox opinion are all so many versions of resistance to finality, to fixity, or what he called circumscription, being bound and hemmed in. Elsewhere, he pronounced, the first and fundamental principle of our holy religion is the freedom to embrace all and every item of truth without limitation or without being circumscribed. But Smith also recognized that the agonistic, agonistic nature of his thinking 
was beyond the, compa the capacity of even some of his followers to fully absorb. There has been a great difficulty in getting anything into the heads of this generation, he famously lamented. It has been like splitting hemlock knots with corn dodger for a wedge and a pumpkin for a beetle. Even the saints are slow to understand. I have tried for a number of years to get the minds of the saints prepared to receive the things of God. But we frequently see some of them, after suffering all they have for the work of God, will fly to pieces like glass as soon as anything comes that is contrary to their traditions. As Socrates had learned centuries earlier, proving contraries is a taxing and unpopular method for giving birth to the new. At other times and places, Smith similarly hinted that he was constrained by a world and even a following, unwilling or incapable, of countenancing his process for revealing truth. To one of his friends, he lamented, he did not enjoy the right vouchsafed to every American citizen, that of free speech. He said when he ventured to give his private opinion on any subject of importance, his words were often garbled and their meaning twisted and then given out as the word of the Lord because they came from him. His insistence that his pronouncements did not always carry prophetic weight was not just a safety net or convenient means of prudent retreat if things didn't work out. It meant that the process, the ongoing dynamic engagement, the exploring, questing, provoking, dialectical encounter with tradition, with boundaries, and with normative thinking should not be trammeled or impeded with clerks and scribes looking for a final word, interrupting a productive process of reflection, contestation, and creation. Sometimes I think the man just wanted the privilege of thinking out loud, but that's hard to do when court stenographers are all around you with sharpened pencils. I imagine in this regard he would have seconded the memorable protest of Virginia Woolf. I should never be able to fulfill what is, I understand, the first duty of a lecturer, to hand you after an hour's discourse a nugget of pure truth to wrap up between the pages of your notebooks and keep on the mantelpiece forever. With Joseph Smith, it seems to always come back to the dynamics of the revelatory process rather than the finality of a polished product, the structure of his thinking, not just the product of his thought. One of these dynamics in particular has enormous repercussions for a philosophy of history and for Joseph's recovery of both past and future worlds. I am referring to Joseph's integration of the divine into the historical and of the historical into the divine, a process that could be said to have begun when he first experienced his epiphany in the woods of upstate New York. Now, of course, any personal encounter with God represents a kind of collapse of sacred distance, an intersection of the transcendent, the heavenly, the divine, with the personal, the earthy, and the human. But Joseph inaugurated a pattern that would increasingly intensify the collapse of those two domains, creating in the process a radical reconceptualization of sacred history itself. As he translated the Book of Mormon, he found himself, the rise of the restored church, and even the particulars of his friend Martin Harris's visit to Columbia professor Charles Anthon to be the subject of ancient holy writ. Scriptural mythology became historical script. When he reached the account of Christ's visit to the Nephites inhabiting ancient America, the episode recontextualized the incarnation of Christ itself. That event, the primary miracle of Christian history, 
whereby the full eruption of the divine into human history is a unique event producing a spate of mythic reverberations becomes in Joseph Smith's expanding vision one of a series of historical iterations, evidence of the complete and literal interfusion of the human by the divine. All of this pushes us in a direction opposite the dominant trend of modernity described by the religious scholar Wilfred Cantwell Smith. With a relatively recent rise in Western consciousness of the new sense of history, he writes, and the consequent careful and rigorous distinction between history and myth, what happened by and large was that the West opted for history and rejected myth. Regarding a scriptural event like the Earth's creation, for example, he writes, we moderns, of course, now recognize it is an error to think that one is dealing here with historical time rather than mythical time. But in Joseph, all we have is historical time. But it is transformed into a dimension which extends infinitely in both directions. Joseph understood the prophetic role in ways that furthered this project. History is recovered by archaeologists and textual scholars we have been raised to believe. The future, eschatology in particular, is the province of prophets and visionaries. The past is determinate and earthly. The future, the day of judgment and millennial events, is the stuff of faith and shadow. But from the day Joseph relied upon prophetic authority and sacred artifacts to recover the words and deeds of Nephi, a 6th century B.C. Israelite who migrated to the Western Hemisphere and founded a civilization, he elided the enormous distance, not chronological distance, but psychological and experiential that separated one from the other. C.S. Lewis has suggested the enormous psychological investment that we have in maintaining as fundamental a distinction between the human and the divine and hints at the crisis that their conflation would occur, would occasion. Quote, when the distinction between natural and supernatural breaks down, one realizes how great a comfort it had been, how it had eased the burden of intolerable strangeness which this universe imposes on us by dividing it into two halves and encouraging the mind never to think of both in the same context what price we may have paid for this comfort in the way of false security and accepted confusion of thought is another matter. But Joseph Smith doesn't allow us such comfortable dichotomizing. I want to move in another direction now and say something about the totality of his thought, conceived not exactly as system, for he was not a systematic thinker, but I think we can nonetheless say something about what all his thinking and revealing and speculating was tending toward. If we trace out briefly the evolution of Smith's prophetic career, I think we can mark a decisive turn sometime in 1830. And some of this is, is uh, retreading the path that Professor Bushman took us down earlier today. But I want to emphasize the growing sense of purpose that Joseph acquired as he found himself, and I agree on this point with Professor Bushman, repeatedly acted upon rather than the initiator of these various stages. When he went to that grove as a 14-year-old youth, he was only asking a private question and a personal prayer, and what he found, he thought, was a revelation of purely personal significance. As he said to his mother, I have learned for myself that such and such a church is not true. He seems to have had no clear intimation of future projects and heavenly callings. It wasn't until he was 17 that he tells of an angel of a light appearing in his room and telling him God had a work for him to do. 
That work, he soon learned, was the translation of the Book of Mormon. It would appear, as he labored on that project, that he still did not dream of any greater calling or mission. It wasn't until March of 1829, just a few months before he finished that considerable task, that the Lord first mentioned to Joseph, quote, the beginning of the rising up and coming forth of his church out of the wilderness. And so in April 1830, Joseph complies with that directive and organizes a church. But even then, he doesn't seem to know that this church is not just another restorationist congregation with a few dozen members and a new revelation. He has yet to learn that the church, so-called, is to become much more than a church. And so it is that in the December after that humble meeting of men and onlookers in Fayette, that Joseph is commanded to gather his followers and actually assemble together at the Ohio. And so it comes to pass that the little flock is now set upon a path to become a people, the kingdom of God on earth, the rock cut without hand from a mountain that will roll forth and fill the earth. But as his religious sphere of influence grew, so too did his revelatory scope. Joseph Smith initially conceived of the Book of Mormon primarily in his words as the record of a fallen people. It was presented to the world in the first generation of the church especially, as a history of the American Indian. Its status as sacred scripture depended first on the fact that it was written by ancient prophets as sacred history, and second on the fact that it bore modern traces of the sacred manifest through its miraculous translation. Originally, the Book of Mormon derived much of its authoritative weight from the Bible. But at the same time, of course, the elevation of the Book of Mormon to scriptural status challenges the supremacy, the uniqueness, and most importantly, the sufficiency of the Bible. I think the implications of that realignment deserve a second look. The principle of sola scriptura, the Bible as only and sufficient ground for authority, is clearly undermined by the Book of Mormon. But that heretical affront to the Bible's status, to the Bible's function as source and guarantor of orthodoxy, may have distracted us from exploring how, in Joseph's mind, that process of dethronement and realignment finished playing out. As a youth of 17, when visited by the angel Moroni, Joseph recorded that the heavenly messenger in his room was quoting to him passages from the Old Testament, but with a little variation from the way they read in our Bible. Now, true as all discussions of this episode note, Joseph would have here become aware of the imperfection or fallibility of the King James Version. But I wonder... Was it here that another seed was planted, suggesting to his mind not just the deficiency of the known text, but the possible plenitude of an unknown text, one cited casually by heavenly messengers? Clearly, it would seem the angel was quoting something of which the Bible was apparently an imperfect version or derivation. Conventional notions of a Christian apostasy or falling away from Christian truth began with a premise generally, that Christ had established his true church in Palestine only to have errors and corruptions creep in with a passage of time. In the course of the Reformation, a major question was only how far those corruptions extended and how drastic the required remedies were. But in the course of measuring current institutions against past incarnations of the truth, some people of a more liberal disposition asked the question, just how much might a just God have revealed to the ancients? Some posited that foreshadowings and fragments of the true gospel were evident among a variety of peoples scattered through time. Jonathan Edwards, like many of the church fathers, believed that God had in fact imparted to several ancient peoples 
essential gospel truths that were subsequently lost. Much earlier, Augustine expressed a version of this idea when he wrote in his retractions, what is now called Christian religion has existed among the ancients and was not absent from the beginning of the human race. While smatterings of eternal principles emerged in the religions and philosophies of antiquity, adherents of this line of reasoning held, only the Bible represented the full and complete and culminating account of God's revelation. Prisca Theologia, as this doctrine was called, or ancient wisdom, was useful both to explain why pagan cultures believed in animal sacrifice and the idea of a divine incarnation, and to affirm God's justice and mercy in dispensing truths to Christians, Jew, and pagan alike. But whereas previous thinkers had emphasized the fundamental nature of prior revelation and its final, perfect consummation in modern scripture, Smith pushed the principle of Prisca Theologia in the opposite direction. From what we can draw from the scriptures relative to the teaching of heaven, he said, we are induced to think that much instruction has been given to man since the beginning, which we do not now possess. Smith's production of the Book of Mormon was the most conspicuous embodiment of this challenge to biblical sufficiency, and the new scripture itself hammered home the message of God's word as endlessly iterated and endlessly proliferating. As Nephi had God declare, I shall speak unto the Jews, and they shall write it. And I shall speak unto the Nephites, and they shall write it. And I shall speak unto the tribes of Israel, and they shall write it. And I shall also speak unto all nations of the earth, and they shall write it. But even before Joseph finished the translation, a most enigmatic revelation suggested that his paradigm was undergoing yet another revision. In April 1829, he produced what he called a translated version of the record made on parchment by John, the Beloved. No matter that Joseph never claimed to have the parchment or that the content of the record was not really theologically significant, it was again what this fragmentary puzzle piece was suggestive of, the incompleteness of the Bible rec biblical record and the corresponding totality of something which Joseph was moving toward. Mere months after publishing the Book of Mormon, Smith even more emphatically reversed the Christian arrow of time with its consummation in a totalizing biblical revelation when he recast the Mosaic narrative of Adam as one in which the patriarch of the human race was the first Christian proselyte. God himself, Smith would write in this restoration of ancient scripture, called upon our father Adam by his own voice, saying, If thou wilt turn unto me and repent of thy transgressions and be baptized in the name of mine only begotten Son, which is Jesus Christ, ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. This book of Moses was unlike anything Joseph had till then produced. Unlike the Book of Mormon, it was not rooted in a recovered ancient record. Unlike his many other revelations, it was not God speaking to his heart and mind. It was a verbal facsimile, but of what original? At this same moment in time, Smith embarked upon a translation of the Old Testament and later the New. But it was a translation, again, without any original to which he had access. He used no ancient manuscripts. Two years later, he received an elaborate revelation long honored with a simple designation, the vision, which detailed the kingdoms of glory. It was, Smith wrote significantly of the document he dictated, a transcript from the records of the eternal world. One year later, in a similar manner, Smith recorded an excerpt, quotations from a first-person account written by John. So here we have 
yet another record that Smith quotes from without himself possessing. And a few years later, Smith pushes the temporal parameters of the gospel even further back when he recounts in the writings of Abraham the great council in heaven. Scriptural production apparently inspired by, but apparently not translated directly from, ancient papyri. The particulars of these Abrahamic writings, like the recuperated Genesis material and the Enoch account, as also the Zenos parable from the Book of Mormon, the missing writings of John, all these need to be evaluated on their own terms. But it is simply the grand project, the virtual suggested master blueprint that constitutes a major idea in its own right. The cumulative weight of these experiences seems to have created in Joseph's mind a major paradigm shift, a wholesale inversion of the traditional model of biblical fullness and prisca theologia. Rather than finding in the pagans and ancients foreshadowings and tantalizing hints of God's revelation which will culminate in the Christian canon, Joseph will work with growing momentum backwards and outwards, as if he gradually conceived of his objective as nothing less than to point us in the direction, through the assemblage of the myriad worlds he revealed, of a gospel plenitude that transcended and preceded and subsumed any and all earthly incarnations, the Bible included, a vision or an intimation of what we could call an ur-text, inducing him to transgress linguistic, religious, and other boundaries in its pursuit. This virtual text is not only imminent in Smith's thought, it is in fact a powerful and prominent image in the scriptural canon itself. Only 11 verses into the Book of Mormon, Lehi is bidden by the Christ to take a book and read, from which book he then does read and sees many great and marvelous things, which give him a knowledge of the future, horror at human wickedness, and rejoicing in God's mercy. Likewise, Ezekiel is given a book, which he is commanded to eat, as, in, as is John the Revelator. Joseph's enterprise thus takes literally the implications of these scriptural images. Since those books pre precede, rather than follow from the canonical record, Joseph works backwards in quest of the wholeness they represent. One begins to see in this context why Joseph's thought can appear undisciplined and unsystematic. His major work was not, or not only, the correction or enunciation of particular theological principles, but the complete reconceptualization of the scope and sweep of gospel parameters themselves. What he bequeathed to posterity was an array of remarkable, tantalizing texts with consistent themes, motifs, and patterns that emerge in a whole series of worlds recovered from the past, pre-mortal realms, councils in heaven, Nephite and Jaredite civilizations, an Adamic gospel dispensation, Enoch's life and mystery, mosaic epiphanies, and weeping gods. One searches for a vocabulary adequate to such endlessly prolifer pro proliferating layers of time and being, beckoning us to imagine a totality in which they all share. Now the question that remains to be worked out over the present and future generations is, how do the particulars of Joseph Smith's worlds hold up? If his collapse of the sacred into the temporal is to succeed, if we are to see his project as truly historical rather than as simply mythic, then ultimately the Book of Mormon, like the writings of Moses and Abraham he recovered, cannot resist examination as the historical records they purport to be. It may be that only with a passage of 200 years, or perhaps more, will we have enough distance from the career of Joseph Smith 
to adequately assess his contributions. This is not alone because of the advantages of hindsight and historical perspective or of the development of critical tools and disciplinary sophistication adequate to the task. These are all important aids. But in the case of Joseph Smith, something else is required. One simply has to step back from a canvas as large as the one he painted. Thank you. We're going to move right ahead and have the break after Margaret Barker speaks to us. Uh, let me say uh, that that will be a good opportunity to submit questions. Uh, I hope the system is still working where cards will be available that you could write those questions on and they can be passed toward the front where we can collect them. Uh, but you'll have a later opportunity as well after the final two speakers. I will also explain that the uh, those who have already spoken will be welcome to sit on this front row uh, for the final two because they will both be using uh, uh, images on the screen. One of the great delights of the last few years of my life has been to become acquainted with Margaret Barker. She will be our first respondent today. She is an independent scholar from the English Midlands who has published a dozen books and dozens of articles which have brought renewed insight and excitement to the study of canonical and non-canonical writings of Christians and Jews. Two of her most recent books, The Revelation of Jesus Christ and The Great High Priest, bring her vast scholarship in this literature to bear on Jesus Christ. While her works have been widely reviewed and acclaimed, they have also been strongly resisted by many who will not consider new or non-traditional interpretations of Abrahamic and Christian religions. We have asked Mrs. Barker to focus her erudition in ancient biblical literatures on the texts published by Joseph Smith in the 1830s to help us assess their value as recoveries of that ancient world. Margaret? It isn't easy to respond in 20 minutes to such a rich and interesting paper. Professor Gibbons has set Joseph Smith in the religious and cultural context of his time and has raised many important issues. I should like to take a few of these issues and set them in another context, Jerusalem in about 600 BCE. Do the revelations to Joseph Smith fit in that context, the reign of King Zedekiah, who is mentioned at the beginning of the first book of Nephi? King Zedekiah was installed in Jerusalem in 597 BCE. <clears throat> I am not a scholar of Mormon texts and traditions, and I must emphasize that. I am a biblical scholar specializing in the Old Testament. And until some Mormon scholars made contact with me a few years ago, 
I would never have considered using Mormon texts and traditions as part of my own work. Since that initial contact, I've had many good and fruitful exchanges and have begun to look at these texts very closely. I'm still, however, very much an amateur in this area. What I offer can only be reactions of an Old Testament scholar. Are the revelations to Joseph Smith consistent with the situation in Jerusalem about 600 BCE? First, Professor Gibbons raised the question of ongoing revelation and an open canon. As far as we know, there was no question of a canon in 600 BCE, and ongoing revelation from the prophets was accepted, even if what the prophets said was uncomfortable. One generation earlier, there had been the great upheaval in the reign of King Josiah, something now regarded as the turning point in the history of Jerusalem and its religion. The events are usually described as King Josiah's reform, the assumption being that everything that he did was good and that the biblical texts describing the reform are an accurate and objective account. Other ancient texts, however, had a very different view of Josiah and his work. But since they were not included in the Bible, they are not often considered when the Bible is taught. Here is our first warning. If the wickedness in Jerusalem mentioned in the first book of Nephi was Josiah's temple purges, we should expect to find information relevant to Mormon tradition in texts outside the Bible. And we do. And the biblical texts themselves take on a new significance if we no longer assume that everyone agreed with Josiah's purge. Jeremiah, a contemporary of King Josiah, has many passages that seem to criticize what has just happened in the city. Some books mentioned in the Old Testament are now lost. First Chronicles 29.29, 29, for example, cites as sources the Chronicles of Samuel the seer, the Chronicles of Nathan the prophet, the Chronicles of Gad the seer. There are several more examples. Some books found among the Dead Sea Scrolls 50 years ago are clearly sacred texts, but we didn't know about them. Even the biblical texts found amongst the scrolls have significantly different wording in several places, reminding me of Joseph Smith's vision when Moroni spoke the words of Malachi, but with a little variation. It can come as a shock to traditional Christians to discover that there were different versions of the Old Testament in the time of Jesus. We cannot know for certain which Bible Jesus knew. Neither the books he regarded as scripture, nor the precise text of those books. Here I need to digress a little. It seemed to me, as I began to look at the traditions of the Latter-day Saints, that their scholars might have more in common with the more radical elements in contemporary biblical scholarship than with the strictly traditional and conservative people. Bearing this in mind, let us look at another of Professor Gibbon's points. Professor Gibbons spoke of the scandal of Joseph Smith's claiming direct communication with God. We now recognize that King Josiah enabled a particular group, the Deuteronomists, to dominate the religious scene in Jerusalem in about 620 BCE. 
Josiah's purge was driven by their ideals, and their scribes influenced much of the form of the Old Testament we have today, especially the history in 1 and 2 Kings. These Deuteronomists denied that anyone could have a vision of the Lord, they denied that anyone had revelations from heaven, and they insisted the Ten Commandments were all that was necessary. Nothing was added to them. Prophecies, they said, were genuine only if they had already been fulfilled and had no more power. The Deuteronomists had no place for angels, and so they didn't use the title Lord of Hosts. These were the minds that eventually led to the closed canon of Scripture and the cessation of prophecy. But the prophets did have visions of the Lord and the angels, and they did speak in the name of the Lord, and their unfulfilled prophecies were carefully preserved. So not everybody shared the views of the Deuteronomists, but their writings are often outside the Bible. The Deuteronomists wrote the history of the kings in Jerusalem, compiling it from sources about ancient kings and heroes, much as we might compile a history today. Other ancient texts, however, give a different picture of how history was written. Past, present, and future were revealed to prophetic figures. Those three sources I mentioned in First Chronicles were all prophets. Samuel the seer, Nathan the prophet, Gad the seer. We find prophetic history also in the Book of Jubilees, parts of which were found among the Dead Sea Scrolls again 50 years ago. The full text of the book had been rediscovered and published at the end of the 19th century, rediscovered in Ethiopia. But the scrolls' fragments confirmed that this was an ancient book. Jubilees describes how the past and the future were revealed to Moses on Sinai and how he was told to write down what he had learned. Enoch, of whom more later, saw all the history of his people, past, present and future, in dream visions. The early Christians believed that Jesus had revealed the past, the present, and the future. And the book of Revelation revealed the past as well as the future. If prophets revealed the past, revealed the past as well as the future, then the revelation of history to Joseph Smith is not out of character. Another history in First Enoch, an enigmatic history known as the Apocalypse of Weeks, implies that Josiah's purge was a disaster. And this history makes no mention of the Exodus. How was it possible to have such a history? For the Deuteronomists, the story of Moses and the Exodus from Egypt was the defining event of their history. But the people who considered Josiah a disaster cannot have considered Moses a major figure. For many years, scholars have suspected that the account of Moses on Sinai receiving the Ten Commandments had been merged with memories from the Jerusalem temple, and that a temple ritual for bringing divine revelation from heaven had been blended with the story of Moses on Sinai. In the centuries after Josiah's purge and after the demise of the monarchy in Jerusalem, Legends surrounding Moses made him more and more like the ancient kings. And by the time of Jesus, the Egyptian Jew Philo could even describe Moses as the god and king of his people. 
Enoch's Apocalypse of Weeks described visions of the holy and righteous and how an unnamed person received the law for all generations. Was this perhaps a temple vision scene where a god and king figure received revelation in heaven and brought it to earth, the figure later absorbed into Moses? There are many places where memories of the old temple ritual still survive. For example, the Son of Man figure in Daniel 7. And I wondered about this when I first read Lehi's vision of the open heaven, the angels, and a radiant figure descending to give Lehi a book. Most of the summaries of history in the Old Testament focus on Moses and the Exodus, but they omit the Sinai story. In other words, the Old Testament histories are the exact opposite of the Apocalypse of Weeks. Scholars have suspected for some time that Sinai and Exodus were originally distinct traditions, joined only after the destruction of the first temple, with the Exodus predominating. The earliest fusion in the Bible is in Nehemiah, a document from perhaps the 5th century BCE. And the final form of the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, may have been compiled even later by people who emphasized Moses and the Exodus rather than temple tradition. For other people, though, the history of Jerusalem had been summarized in this little apocalypse of weeks. It was a vision of history given to Enoch by angels and learned from heavenly tablets. It described Noah, Abraham, the law-giving, the temple, the disaster in the temple just before it was destroyed, and the scattering of the chosen people. Try to imagine how these people might have reacted to discovering their history rewritten, supplemented by the history of their Lord appearing in Egypt and rescuing some people there, or how they might have reacted to Ezekiel's claim that the Lord had appeared to his people in Babylon. In the course of time, this has all been absorbed into the tradition of ongoing revelation. The people of the Apocalypse of Weeks, however, considered that the people who rebuilt Jerusalem were apostates and they rewrote the histories, even though we consider those histories as the norm. The Apocalypse of Weeks, that tiny fragment of ancient history in the first book of Enoch, is almost forgotten or considered rather strange. Nor must we forget the crisis which has now engulfed biblical scholarship. Archaeology simply does not give supporting evidence for a great deal of the history in the Old Testament. And scholars are asking themselves, what are we reading? Whose Bible is this? When was it written? No ancient texts of the Bible have been found and there is no physical proof that the Old Testament is older than its earliest written deposits, which are fragments among the Dead Sea Scrolls and some of those are different from the Old Testament that we know. Let us now consider another of Professor Gibbon's points, the question of human beings becoming divine and accepting the serpent's invitation in Eden to become as gods. In the later Old Testament tradition, this was indeed a sin. 
But how might such an invitation have been viewed in 600 BCE? The familiar story of Adam and Eve is the reworking of an older story after memories of the loss of Eden and the loss of the older temple had merged. The tree that had been intended in Eden for human food was the tree of life. And the perfumed oil of that tree anointed humans and made them like angels, sons of God. That was the tradition of the ancient priests in the temple who thought of themselves as angels, messengers from heaven. The tree of life gave wisdom and eternal life, but the human pair disobeyed and chose knowledge that could be used for good or evil. Only then did they discover that they were barred from the tree of life. The prophet Ezekiel, also in Jerusalem in 600 BCE, said that the anointed one in Eden became mortal and died because wisdom and perfection had been abused for the sake of power and splendor. Satan's deception in Eden was to imply that both trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, had the same benefit, that both made humans like angels. It was the disobedience that was the problem, not the state they aspired to. And they had, been, they had to be barred from eternal life because they had disobeyed. In the book of Revelation, this is reversed. The faithful Christian is promised access again to the tree of life. And this meant access to the angel state. It was not the aspiration, but the attitude that was wrong. In 600 BCE, the sin would have been pride and disobedience, not the wish to be angels, sons of God. Consider here another assumption. That the books in the Old Testament are older than the ancient books not in the Old Testament. The Enoch texts must be late, it is assumed, because they are not in the Bible. Last year, I published a commentary on Isaiah, which showed that the original Isaiah in Jerusalem knew the Enoch traditions, but was not much concerned with Moses. Isaiah's world was the world of Enoch's angels. Other scholars are now exploring the possibility that Enoch traditions underlie some of the older stories in Genesis. Enoch traditions could have been very important in 600 BCE, just as the revelation to Joseph Smith implies. <clears throat> this should not surprise us, as the Enoch traditions show clearly that human beings can become angels who continue their lives on earth. In the coded language of Enoch's dream visions, animals represent human beings and men are angels. Noah, we read, was born a bull and became a man after an angel taught him a secret. And in the apocalypse of weeks, there are three men, Noah, Abraham, and possibly Isaiah, but the text here is rather enigmatic. The Enoch books are clearly in the same tradition as the Bible, and yet there is no quotation from the Bible in them. Those who preserve the Enoch traditions may have had different scriptures. Isaiah, who prophesied in the years before 700 BCE, spoke of a female figure and her son, and also of a great tree that had been cut down, but with sacred seed surviving in the stump. His contemporary, the prophet Micah, spoke of a woman in travail who'd gone out of the city, but would give birth to the great shepherd of Israel. 
Who was this mother? What was the great tree? Piecing together other contemporary evidence, we could conclude that she was wisdom, the one whom Josiah eventually purged from the temple, but whose symbol, the tree of life, had been removed many years earlier in the time of Isaiah and then replaced. In the time of Josiah, her tree, the Asherah, the menorah, was finally removed from the temple and not only removed, but also burnt, beaten to dust and cast on the common graves. It was utterly desecrated. Why such hatred? Hostility to wisdom was a hallmark of the Deuteronomists, and due to their influence, the mother and her tree have been almost forgotten. Her son was the Lord. We can deduce this from the Dead Sea Scrolls version of Isaiah's Emmanuel prophecy. Isaiah chapter 7. Ask a sign, said the prophet, from the mother of the Lord your God. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. And she was attended by angels, the host of heaven, whom the Deuteronomists tried to obscure. Each time the lady was driven from the temple, so too were the angels, the holy ones. A word very similar in Hebrew to the word for prostitutes, which is how it is often translated. The divine son, the priest of the order of Melchizedek, was born in the glory of these holy ones, or so it seems. Psalm 110 is an enigmatic text, but it seems to describe the birth of an angel priest in the Holy of Holies of the Temple, which represented heaven. The Tree of Life made one happy, according to the book of Proverbs, but other de- <clears throat> for other detailed descriptions of the tree, we have to rely on the non-canonical texts. Enoch described it as perfumed with fruits like grapes, but a text discovered in Egypt in 1945 described the tree as beautiful, fiery, and with fruit like white grapes. I don't know of any other source which describes the fruit as white grapes. So you can imagine my surprise when I read the account of Lehi's vision of the tree whose white fruits made one happy, and the interpretation of the vision that the virgin in Nazareth was the mother of the Son of God after the manner of the flesh. This is the heavenly mother, represented by the tree of life, and then Mary and her son on earth. This revelation to Joseph Smith was the exact ancient wisdom symbolism, intact, and almost certainly as it was known in 600 BCE. There is no doubt that teachings from the time of the first temple have been lost, or rather, are now to be found only in texts outside the Bible. Jewish tradition says that all sacred texts were lost when Jerusalem was destroyed and that Ezra the scribe restored them, inspired by God Most High, to dictate 94 books. Only 24 of them could be revealed, the rest were to be kept secret. This story may refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in 597 BCE or to the second destruction of the city in 70 CE. Either way, it was recognized that the original scriptures had been lost and that only a fraction of those restored became the public canon. Justin Martyr, a Christian writer in the middle of the second century CE, claimed that the Jews had been altering the scriptures. 
an Aramaic document from the same period known as the Scroll of Fasting, lists the anniversaries of great events in the Second Temple period as days on which it was forbidden to fast. On the third day of Tishri, in the autumn, it was forbidden to fast because, I quote, the memory of the documents was removed, or perhaps you translate it, the memory was removed from the documents. Some records had been destroyed, and this was a cause for celebration. It would be interesting to know what these were. The first book of Enoch records that lying words had been written, perverting the eternal covenant. Sinners had altered the truth as they made copies, they'd made fabrications and written books in their own name. The Quran also tells of people who had altered the meaning of the texts, had composed texts and then said they were scripture, and accepted only part of the sacred text. One passage describes how some of the people of the book threw it away and chose instead to follow evil teaching from Babylon. This could easily be describing the people who returned from Babylon and built the second temple, <clears throat> people whom Enoch called the apostate generation. There are many similar references in the Quran, for example, to people who look for allegorical and hidden meanings rather than the plain meaning of the text and who twist the words of scripture. The Quran also mentions the book of Abraham and the book of Moses, described as the books of the earliest revelation. These were prophecies in Arabia in the 7th century of the Christian era. The extraordinary similarity between a text that is sometimes called the history of the Rechabites and sometimes the narrative of Zosimus, the extraordinary similarity between this story and the story of Lehi leaving Jerusalem has already been studied by Mormon scholars. This ancient text, which survives in Greek, Syriac, and Ethiopic, tells the story of some people who left Jerusalem about 600 BCE and they went to live in a blessed land. They didn't drink wine. They were called the sons of Rechab, which could mean that Rechab was their ancestor, or it could be the Hebrew way of saying that they were temple servants, priests who served the divine throne. In their blessed lands, angels had announced to them the incarnation of the word of God from the Holy Virgin, who is the mother of God. Nobody can explain this text. The Jerusalem Talmud, compiled in Palestine, perhaps early in the 5th century CE, a Jewish text, remembered a similar tradition. A large number of priests fought with the Babylonians against Jerusalem after Josiah's purges, and then they moved south and went to live in Arabia. Professor Gibbons spoke of jo Joseph Smith's thoroughgoing endeavor to overturn the most sacred tenets of cultural Christianity. And one of these must be the identity of Yahweh the Lord who appears in the Old Testament as the God of Israel. New Testament scholars agonize over why the first Christians applied Old Testament Yahweh text to Jesus. How, they asked, could the early Christian teachers, all of them, have found Jesus in the Old Testament? When I wrote a book setting out all this rather obvious evidence, it was regarded as strange and hopelessly radical. Another example, the Jerusalem Bible 
which is the translation prepared by the Roman Catholic Church, leaves the name Yahweh in the Old Testament instead of using the customary form, the Lord, but then has the Lord in the New Testament. One editorial decision broke the link between the Old Testament and the New and obscured the fundamental proclamation of the first Christians, Jesus is the Lord, Jesus is Yahweh. One more example. The New English translation of the Targum, which is the Aramaic version of the Old Testament, does not use the term Messiah in the Psalms when translating the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means Messiah. The reason given is this, and I quote, it does not seem appropriate to use words like Messiah and Messianic in connection with the Hebrew text of the Old Testament. That was published last year. It was my challenge to assumptions such as these, which simply ignore the evidence of both the Hebrew Bible and of early Christian writings, that led to my first contact with Mormon scholars. The original temple tradition was that Yahweh, the Lord, was the Son of God Most High, present on earth in the Messiah. This means that the older religion in Israel would have taught about the Messiah, and so finding Christ in the Old Testament is exactly what we should expect but something obscured by incorrect reading of the scriptures. And this, I suggest, is one aspect of the restoration of the plain and precious things which have been taken away. The greatest loss has been the temple and the angels and everything they represented. There can be no doubt that the central theme of Jesus' teaching was the restoration of the true temple and what it meant. He was proclaimed as the Melchizedek priest, the expected Messiah, described as Melchizedek in the text found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what had happened to the Melchizedek priesthood? One of the great moments in my own journey of discovery was reading an article published in about 1980 showing that the religion of Abraham must have survived until the time of King Josiah because that was part of what he purged from his kingdom. In 600 BCE, the religion of Abraham was not just a distant memory. This suggests that the Melchizedek priesthood also survived until the time of Josiah, associated with the monarchy, as Psalm 110 makes clear. It was superseded in Jerusalem by the Aaron priesthood very much later than we often suppose. It is likely that Aaron's family came to prominence in Jerusalem only when Moses did, as a result of King Josiah's changes. And we must remember it was the Deuteronomists who wrote the major history of those times. There were long memories of the lost temple. In the time of the Messiah, it was said the true temple would be restored and all the missing things would be put back, the spirit, the fire, the cherubim and the ark, but also the anointing oil and the menorah. Now, this is strange because there was a seven-branch lamp in the second temple, but maybe it didn't represent what the original had represented. It was not the tree of life. In the era of Melchizedek, then, it was linked to the spirit, the fire, the anointing oil, and the lamp representing the tree of life. Now, my time is more than gone, so I should like to thank Professor Gibbons very much for this paper, which, for me, prompted so many ideas. Thank you.
We'd like to thank our presenter and our first respondent for getting off, getting us off to such an excellent start. It's 13 minutes after. We'll reconvene at 23 minutes after and continue uh, the second half of this session.